Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the One Broke Actress Podcast, an honest account of actor life plus a few lessons I learn in the process. I am your host, Sam Valentine, and can I just say that today's guest is a goddamn honor to have on this show. John Frank Levy is a four-time Emmy award-winning casting director. That is correct. You heard that right. Perhaps you've heard of the show, I don't know, ER or The West Wing or Shameless or Southland or Animal Kingdom. He is a big freaking deal, you guys. And I have to thank casting director Sarah Isaacson for introducing us because it was just so lovely to get to speak with him. He wrote a book just recently that's called Write for the Role, and I was able to read it before I interviewed him. So we got to talk a lot about his book the longevity of his career, what's worked in casting rooms in his early days versus what works now, the transition to Zoom that he saw actually happen live over the pandemic, and how he finds actors specifically, and his definition of branding and how actors figure out their essence, which is the word he actually likes to use. John refers to himself constantly in this conversation as a Luddite or old school or something to that effect, but I think what you'll really notice here is the themes that stand out from casting from the 80s until now are actually still true and the things that make actors quality for a role are still true now just as they were then. We also get into pitching versus submitting and how casting directors work with networks. There's a whole lot we're breaking down in this so let's get into it. Without further ado, please enjoy casting director John Frank Levy. John, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being here and rolling with the tech issues. I am super curious for you now, having written your whole book, which we talked about in the intro a little bit, how do you feel having all of that on paper, all of your Hollywood history now in this book? It was a very vulnerable place to put myself in. I'm not a very public person. I've actually never been on social media. And I've always kept very much to myself and my family and my close friends. But I decided to do it uh, as a kind of a legacy piece because I discovered in the process with Trudy Roth that I had something to say and that something sort of thematically was about the importance of forming community and about the importance of open collaboration. And I felt that it was worth opening myself up to talk about those things in a public way. We go into the nuts and bolts of the casting process uh, fairly thoroughly. Some colleagues of mine over the years have commented that this is the first time that the inside workings of the casting process have been revealed with accuracy. And I appreciate that. You know, the private parts of the book are harder, but they were necessary because they happened. Yeah, what what I I mean, I loved so much of it, especially as an actor. I have to tell you that the breakdowns of every project along with the actor you ended up casting, I found to be fascinating. And I definitely want to delve into some of those. But there was a lot of you that came through in terms of like your personal life. And I'm curious because, you know, your your job is as reading with vulnerable actors so much of the time. Did you kind of feel a little switch like you were the vulnerable one for those pieces? Well, yeah, absolutely. I decided that I was willing to be the vulnerable one. And I spent so much of my career trying to make you all 
feel comfortable and valued so that you could do your best work and so that I could contribute to your development as an artist. I also really enjoyed that you talk very much openly about how one job in your career led to the next, led to the next, and how your work in theater led to your work in, and then eventually at one point you worked in, at Breakdown Services, which I'd love to talk about, and then going into the full casting business. Did it feel at the time as though it was very linear? N- no. It was one meal at a time, you know, we just ate what was put in front of us and trusted that one thing would lead to another, you know, that the hip bone is connected to the thigh bone from that old song. And, you know, that it was leading somewhere seemed clear, but where it was leading, I had no idea. I think I say in the book at a certain point that I didn't even know what a casting director was five years before I became one. I think we talk about in the book, Trudy and I, that One of the things that's important is to be open to the happy accident that could happen in your life, personally and professionally. You just never know when something is going to happen that's going to produce something else that's going to be exhilarating, thrilling, and help you grow and develop as a person and as an artist. Yeah. And I, you know, you can see that in your work too. You can see even in the writing of the book, the artistry of it all. Cause sometimes, especially on the acting side, right, which is 99% of our listening audience, we tend to think of ourselves as the artist and everyone else as like the back end. And so to think of the whole piece as an artist, is just such a lovely reminder of everyone's job in the process too. Yeah. I mean, I think that not only are we all artists, but we're all people. We're all dealing with our personal lives. We're all dealing with our fears and our foibles and our worries and our concerns. We're all fantasizing about positive results and also negative results. And I've tried very hard to concentrate on the work and to get other people to concentrate on the work and to leave that. You know, actors often ask me, how do I deal with my nervousness? And uh, the character isn't nervous. So if you're in the character, her thoughts, her feelings, her circumstances, your nerves have no place in that. Are there certain things that you have seen actors do come in? Because you've seen now, I mean, the casting of West Wing stands out to me so much in the book. One, because I was way too young to watch that show, but I loved it. I thought it was phenomenal. I, I remember I loved it for what it was. I didn't understand what it did to television, right? Like what it was bringing, what it was special at the time. But now looking back hands down incredible. But for example, seeing actors of that caliber coming in and reading, are there through lines you saw for actors of how they managed working in a room with production and directors and casting that was like a through line that you saw often with different actors of things they brought to the room of how they held themselves? Sure. I mean, particularly in the West Wing, one of the things that you had to have as a quality was the appearance of intelligence three-dimensional intelligence where you could really grapple with the political issues that were going on separate from the interpersonal stuff that was going on. Also, you had to be able to talk as fast as Aaron Sorkin writes, which is, you know, there's some really wonderfully talented actors who simply can't talk that fast and who can't walk and talk like that. It's a a remarkable skill. And uh, it was quite clear from the beginning if someone had that or if they didn't have that. When you're talking about policy, government policy, you have to at least appear to understand it yourself. Uh, and, uh, 
And, you know, I mean, I think Richard and Rob and Brad and Allison and, of course, Martin and John Spencer all had that. You know, John also had that rough and tumble quality that made you know that you couldn't mess around with him, that he had that power. They just brought so much of Aaron's world to life so instinctively. It was a truly spectacular cast, and it wouldn't have been the same 10 years later because it was all white at first until Dulé joined us. You mentioned that in the book about a network oversight to like try and fill a quota to some extent and like how casting has been influenced by that. How have you seen that play out in the industry? It's long overdue that people of color are on television and so that young people of color can see themselves on television. And it got mandated at a certain point And that was good and right because it wasn't happening fast enough on its own. When more and more writers and directors and storytellers of color began to be showrunners, then things changed. I'm a white actress, right? So there's only so much I know about that particular push, but I tried to bring actors on this podcast to talk about what challenges they've faced in that world and how they see it going right and how they see it going wrong. And, you know, I think what you said is true that there has been a lot of ups and downs in the process and that there has been a lot of missteps in the process of trying to get it quote unquote right, right? As we like course correct on this better path we have of actually showing what the world looks like outside of our windows. I think when you go back and look, say, at the pilot of ER, which I'm extremely proud of, it is true that the only person of color of the series regular stars was Eric LaSalle. And I have great respect for Eric because he took that roles very seriously. But what I refer to in the book as the trampoline of actors, the nurses, the desk clerks, the emergency medical technicians, the doctors from other floors that come down to consult at the ER. We had Latinx actors in some of those roles. We had Asian American actors in some of those roles. We had African American actors in some of those roles. We had LGBTQ actors in some of those roles. And it was before the network was telling us to do it. It was because it was integral to the story, because so many of the people who used the ER as their primary medical care were people of color and people without insurance. In that time when you were casting that show, for example, how closely did you work with the writers? Because obviously they put out the scripts and the stories and then you help fulfill the roles. But how close was that relationship? Extremely close. So many of the writers and directors on ER had been people that I had worked with on China Beach years earlier. And we had a close relationship. We were a community and we were respectful collaborators. John Wells is one of the great leaders in any field. And he collected people for whom community and collaboration was important. And every script was met with a concept meeting where the heads of all of the departments would meet with the writer and the director to talk about 
the tone of that particular episode and some of the goals and aims of that particular episode and to talk about the impact of the changes that the lead characters were going through. We were very detailed and collaborative in that community and it all stemmed from John's leadership qualities. You know, he always used to say that we spent more time together than we got to with our families. And in some ways, sadly, and in some ways, not so sadly, that was true. (laughs) In that aspect, because you worked with him so much and you talk about it a lot in the book. In fact, you have to start renaming people named John by different names because there's so many of them mentioned in working with the same people so often. What aspects did you see build a community in a set? Because a lot of times too, we get shows now that are mini series, so they get only, you know, X amount of time of shooting. What are some through lines you saw for building community in a set? You know, again, it it started with John because he had respect for the process and respect for the result. And the people who were collected into the community either bought into that or exited stage left following a bear fairly quickly. And, and, and then also, you know, I think it's fair to say that success played an enormous part in that as well. ER changed all of our lives. Anyone who was a core member of the community of ER went from having a job to having a developing reputation in their professional life. That's a very intoxicating and thrilling feeling the you know during ER 40 million Americans watched that show and they couldn't i suppose they could record it but they mainly watched it at the same time in their relative time zones you know it, it, in those days maybe there were 200 million Americans and maybe 40 million of them were asleep they were too young or too old so out of the other 160 of the people were watching that one television show. That can never happen again. And it was a remarkable feeling to be part of that. Did that change your career in terms of pressure and name recognition at all? Was there anything that changed about the way you worked? Or did you feel like you had to maintain some sort of like, oh, I'm John Levy, like now people know who I am. Was there anything that came along with that? No, if anything, it helped grow my confidence because I had long-term relationships with writers and directors and producers on those shows. I didn't feel any pressure to not take a chance or not express an opinion. It was a very respectful, open, you know, one of the thrilling parts of the book for me is at the very beginning, John Wells wrote a foreword, which I could barely read. And at the end of the book, there's a chapter that we call Other People's Memories. An old friend of mine, Carol Flint, who's a writer, she was on China Beach and ER and later on the West Wing, and she also developed shows of her own that we worked on together. She asked if there was really a book or was I just collecting accolades? And that, that chapter at the end <laughs> that chapter at the end of the book is a little bit like being at my funeral but still being alive. <laughs> Listen, that sounds dreamy. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I also am curious for you because you were casting Animal Kingdom during the pandemic. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. I mean, we did six seasons total. The first five were before the pandemic and the sixth one was 
in the middle of the worst part of the pandemic. We were one of the, I think we were the first show to return to production after the various guilds were able to work out protocols for how production would work. That's crazy. How have you seen the side of casting change since the pandemic? Obviously, we're all on self-tapes, we're things like that on Zoom, which you talk about a little bit in the book. But in your personal opinion, how do you feel like it's going? Well, I'm both old and old school, and I'm also a lover of the human beings that I work with. And to not be in a room with actors and writers and directors and producers was extremely difficult for me because... You learn so much in the room that has nothing to do with the scenes that you're auditioning with. The moments between when you come in the door and when you sit down in the chair and when you are greeted by the writers and directors and producers and casting people and you greet them are very telling moments. And we reveal ourselves When we had live auditions, I often liked to play the fool and goof around in the waiting room to keep people loose. And I did that in in the room as well, kind of a teasing, fun approach to uh, revealing the personalities of the people I was fixing up with each other. I very much tried to keep the room a light and a bouncy kind of place. And you have no control over that in the Zoom world. You don't know whether someone is on their 35th take or on their second take. And that's very important information. Sometimes the camera's set up so you have a close-up and you don't really get a full sense of someone's physicality. For instance, on Animal Kingdom, Ben Robson, who played Craig, is a very tall man. And so if you were going to cast a Another person opposite him, either another man in a conflict or a woman in a romantic situation, and you didn't really know whether she was five foot two or five foot eight, uh, you're missing so much accidental information on Zoom. That said, we had to cast Pope and his twin sister and Scott Speedman's character, Baz, as 17-year-olds in the sixth season. And it happened on Zoom. We did callbacks on Zoom and a mix-and-match chemistry reading on Zoom. And the result was excellent. Interestingly enough, the director, Nick Kopis, at a certain point said, we muted them. And he said, this is so weird. And I said, yeah, it really is. He said, but you know what's not weird? Is we're going to see them on television at the end. And we're seeing them on television now. So, you know, uh, technology has its upside. It certainly is more convenient. You can do more volume in a shorter period of time. You can share the link with your director who's in a hotel room in Vancouver. There's a million things about it that are good. But we're in the business of telling human beings stories. And without human contact, that's a giant deficit from my perspective. Yeah, it's really hard. Are there things you witnessed that made an actor show up as human in a Zoom or on a self-tape that worked? Only if it was just me and Kim and Tawny, Kim Wong and and Tawny Tamietti, my extremely able associates, talented more even than able. You know, when it was just the three of us and it was a Zoom, we could give a lot of free feedback. 
Once the directors and the producers and the writers got onto the Zoom with us, we relinquished some of that. It was more business and less human. One of my favorite companies in the whole world agreed to sponsor my podcast, and I don't know what we did right, but they're also giving you a deal. So buckle up because Olive in June is now a sponsor for the One Broke Actress podcast. You have seen me talk about them nonstop on Instagram because I found them in COVID when I needed something to do with my nails and my free time. And Olive in June has been a consistent piece of my life ever since then. Their manicure system has changed my nail game completely. I now know how to do my nails, first of all, and we all know how challenging that can be, especially at home. I save so much time and so much money because their nail kit breaks down to, drumroll please, $2 a manicure. Yes, $2. Here's what I do not miss about going to a nail salon. One, the amount of time that it takes to sit there. How many times have you thought, man, I wish I could just drop off my hands and pick them up later after I go run all my errands? Also, do they take cash? Can I pay with a card? Do I even have cash? Who has cash these days? Am I going to get a parking ticket? Now I just sit at home. I set a podcast. I sit down at my table and I set myself up with Olive and June's Manny system and I am good to go. And I cannot even begin to tell you how many times this has come in handy when I have a last minute audition that needs neutral nails or they want to see your hands or, oh, I just want to change up my nails for this weekend, but I need to change them back on Monday for an audition. They make it the easiest thing possible because you have the full salon in your box at home. You may have also seen me use Olive and June's press on nails, which I'll have to talk about more later, but it is the best nail system if you want a really easy press on manicure that is made of 94% recycled material. So no random pieces of plastic everywhere. They have so many perfect sizes to find the perfect fit. And I get the most compliments whenever I wear them because they have really fun designs too. So like on a weekend out, I can just pop on a set. So the best part about this is that Olive and June coming on means you guys get a discount. So visit oliveandjune.com slash broke20 for 20% off any first time purchase of any full system. That means you can buy the Manny system, the Petty system, because yes, they do pedicures too, and the press-on system. Any of those that they have available to you because you want the full experience, because you want to learn how to properly cut your nails and take care of your cuticles and all of these things that we're just never taught when we're handed a bottle of polish at the grocery store. You know what I'm saying? That's oliveandjune.com slash broke20 for 20% off any first-time purchase of any full system. That's oliveandjune, O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash B-R-O-K-E 20. It is also linked in the show notes. Go get them, guys. And go watch my Instagram if you want to see me use them basically daily. Okay, back to the show. In bringing in the actors that you brought in for any of your various projects, a lot of the things you talked about were what made them right for the role. And something I loved that I noticed quite often was a lot of the things that made people right for a role was who they were as people. I have a lot of actors who reach out to me and want to talk to me about like branding and how do I market myself and things like that. Can we have that open discussion about like actor branding and how who you are is your brand and that and that kind of a thing? Because it gets very conflicting, especially for developmental actors. Because I'm both old and old school, I don't give a damn how many followers you have on TikTok. I don't even really know how to spell TikTok. (laughs) I'm recently on Instagram because it is an effective way to market my book, which is 
something that's important to me. I want to get it out there, not because I'm going to make any money on it, because that certainly wasn't the goal, but because during the course of writing it, I discovered that I had something important to contribute. I wanted that contribution to, you know, I didn't want it to be a tree that fell in the forest that nobody heard. So I understand that we're in a world where the internet and all of these social media platforms are effective, but they don't replace essence. They don't replace personality. They don't replace energy, vivacity. They don't replace humor. They don't replace intelligence. They don't replace sexuality or danger or any of the other qualities that people possess. And actors are different. I've said this many times, and I've probably said it in the book as well. You know, if you're a piano player and the piano is in tune, the reliability of the 88 keys exists. You only have your experience and your imagination, your body and your voice. That's all an actor has. They can spend a lot of time developing their craft, and I'm certainly in very much in favor of training and doing the work and taking the work seriously. It's not easy. But a lot of it is just unlocking yourself and letting yourself into the circumstances and the words and the behavior of the character, elements of yourself. And part of that is knowing who you are. You know, I have said in the past that actors are both the product and the salesperson. They are also both the instrument and the player. Yeah, you, you probably always had to be a, a good salesperson, but it was more important that you were a fascinating product. Yeah. What advice would you give to actors who were figuring out what their product was? Well, I, I think the way the world treats you is very informative. Look at the way people treat you. If people seem intimidated by you, you have a certain kind of authority and force as a person. If no one ever seems intimidated by you, you have a certain kind of meekness. It's not necessarily the truth, but it's the quality. I hate the phrase typecasting. But, but we do recognize yeah. that people have certain qualities. For the West Wing, the quality of intelligence and a verbal dexterity was a prerequisite. For ER, the sense that these people had a heroic, selfless quality was important. Figuring out what qualities you're looking for and having a sense of what qualities people possess and how well-trained they are in order to be able to tap into those qualities and reveal them, that's the formula for figuring out who's right for what role. Yeah, and I think that ability to, to step outside of yourself and look back is something I've only been able to do as I've gotten older. It was something that was very hard to do when I was 22 when I entered this business. <laughs> I think I say you know, in the book that... I wanted to be an actor when I was 22, and I wasn't a very good actor because I hadn't the slightest idea who I was. It was through my work as a casting director and through my life that I began to figure out who I was, both in a positive and a negative sense. And I was able to work on the things that seemed negative, and I was able to enhance the things that seemed positive. And I guess that's called maturing and growing up a little bit. I think people who think they know who they are at 22 are probably wrong. 
<laughs> I think you'd probably be correct. Something also I wanted to hit on, it's also similar to this vein, is that you talk a lot about the pitches you got from agents and managers and how at that time it was a lot of phone calls early on. You talk about your system for your piles of headshots, which I thought was fascinating because I can kind of see how that lends itself to the back end of breakdown services, which I've spent some time on. And it's just such a fascinating process. Can you kind of walk through what that was then for anybody who's listening who hasn't read the book? It was before technology. It was it was before cell phones. It was before email and text. It was before all of that. So in some ways, it was better because you communicated directly human to human and developed relationships based on whose taste you could trust. I loved the developing of relationships with agents and managers and finding out whose taste was similar to mine and also talking to them about things other than pitches, so that I found out, you know, who was married and who was single and who was lonely and who was happy and who was funny as hell and who wasn't funny at all. And, you know, who was well-educated and who wasn't and who was instinctive and who was encyclopedic. And you, you had a much better opportunity to develop real relationships with people that, that was very, very, very valuable to me because that's the world I come from and that's the world I believe in. And then w when we got into email and electronic submissions and self-tapes, I worried that my young associates weren't having the opportunity to form relationships that would benefit them in 15 years. And I, I do worry about that. Fortunately, I have the best of both worlds because I have the convenience and immediacy of technology, and I have these two wonderful women who understand it well working with me. I have also the history of my 35-plus years doing it so that I trust my own methodology and my, and my relationships. Yeah. Would you explain the difference between a pitch and a submission for an actor who's listening? Well, a, a pitch for me would be much more active. A submission would be just the passive sending in of the picture and resume, either a hard copy in an envelope in 1980 or an electronic submission through the breakdowns today. You know, you could put out a breakdown today and you might get 2,000 submissions for a two-line Ways who says, would you like another cup of coffee, sir? Honestly, the camera will be on the other person in the scene almost all the time. And it might be on the two-line waitress for a half a second. It's not that it doesn't matter who plays that part, because it matters who's feeding the customer, who's the person we know and care about. And so you want them to be good. You know, one network executive who, who I'm fond of didn't approve a two-line emergency medical technician in a pilot that he's not approved. And I said, well, gee, I have personally cast more two-line emergency medical technicians than every other casting director on the planet. What is it about him that you don't like? And what is the damage you think will happen if he is the choice. And that actor was then approved. <laughs> 
Oh, that's phenomenal. That is phenomenal. I'm a bit of a brat. I like it. With your lineage, sir, I feel like you can absolutely be a brat. When did that change for you when you started to develop these relationships that you were, were you, were you more trusting of the actors being sent to you from the people who you had relationships with? Yes, absolutely. Never did anybody a favor, but I was open to being convinced that somebody might be right. You know, and I had great training as well. I I worked for Barbara Clayman, who was an enormously powerful casting director in New York, and then later here in L.A., where I worked with her for a while. And then I worked with one of the best teachers in any field that I've ever known or had, a woman named Marsha Kleinman. And, And she taught me how to be an advocate for actors, how to fight with your own clients when you were passionate about something and how to do it with grace and respect. I sometimes didn't do it with grace and respect, and I probably suffered the consequences of that uh, occasionally. I regret that because I value grace and respect very much. But sometimes if you lean too hard into grace and respect, you lean away from passion. I think if you're going to be in the storytelling business, that's millions and millions of years old, passion is a very important element of that storytelling. When you're inside of these relationships, right, like how you've built your career, I'm really curious because some things we don't think about a lot is the hierarchy of executive casting versus like independent casting directors and how several different for example, like Warner Brothers has lots of different casting directors under their purview. So can you kind of talk us through that? Sure. Well, you know, in the old days at Warner Brothers, when I was there, we were online. We were, I like to say, we were the pigs in the mud. We were doing the casting with with the writers and producers and directors. Just as I was leaving Warner Brothers to go work for John Wells exclusively at first and then not, Warner Brothers turned to the model that was previously typical only of the network. And, And they were supervising the casting director, controlling the information of the casting process within the executive structure at Warner Brothers or at Universal or at, you know, Paramount or wherever. When the Warner Brothers switched to that model, I didn't want to have anything to do with that. I'm not, I don't want to supervise anyone. I want to be in the mud with the pigs. That's you all. Yeah, that's us. When that relationship exists, but then you go and you said you worked with John Wells and then you started your own casting company. Is that correct? That's right. I I was exclusive to John Wells when I left Warner Brothers for a while. And then I started Levy casting separate from that. And John, we maintained our relationship and I tried to stay available for him as much as possible. But I also sought other work and did other work for other people. And that was, that was fun. It was fun to get to know other writers and producers and directors who weren't part of the community that John built. I must say, I've always done my best work in the community that John built. We spoke a language and, you know, mm-hmm. we could refer back to so-and-so when they did that and such and such. And yeah, I feel that this guy has some of the same qualities as that guy that we loved 10 years ago. You know, and you don't have that language and that experience with with new people. Well, and that is something on all sides of this business, I feel as though I tell actors this often, that 
the longer you stay here, the more of that you have to offer, the more back and forth you have, the more you know someone, the more people know you, and then it becomes less of, oh, here's this random person so much as like, oh, here's her. We talked about her like six years ago, but just want to reintroduce. And I feel like that's the gift of sticking around for a while. You're completely right. And, and, and uh, it takes away from the actor the notion that they have to prove themselves every minute. Because, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a good actor who with a long career and an excellent reputation doesn't get every job. And there's no sin in crime, and they don't go back to their car after an audition that they might not have done their best and punch the steering wheel and cuss out the window on the freeway because they know that, you know, win a little, lose a little. I had a wonderful guy come in, a a guy who's I've known for almost 40 years, and he did a fantastic audition for something on Animal Kingdom. I said to him afterwards, I, I said, God, when did you learn to just trust yourself and do nothing. And he said, I've been doing this as long as you've been doing that. You must have learned that too. And I was like, yeah, I, I, you're right. I, I, don't ha- I, I don't have that thing that young people are afflicted with of having to prove myself. It's a glorious moment when you get to that place where you go, you know, failure is not a big deal. Uh, I'm not getting fired if I need to have a second session, you know, be passionate, be thorough, do do your job and have some fun. Yeah, it is fun, right? Oh, my God. Can you imagine if you had to sell insurance or, (laughs) or, you know, you were a a law clerk? So much paperwork. I cannot imagine. I, I, something that you said too about, you know, a professional actor gets to a point where they just don't beat themselves up over every single audition. And I think something I'm seeing a lot with actors right now is there is, especially in the first 10 plus years of your career, there are long gaps between projects. And sometimes it's six months, sometimes it's a year, sometimes you're just not sure when something's going to come back around. Are there any things that you've seen when you see an actor come in for a role and you see them a couple of years later and you're unclear what they've done in the meantime, have you heard any actors utilizing their free time well? Like what are, what are ways they've utilized their free time to change themselves better, to show up better in their careers? Well, I mean, I think that's a really pertinent question. And it goes back to the idea that we talked about earlier, where all you have is your experiences and your imagination. So you should be doing things to end your training. So you should be doing things to enhance your training. You should be doing things to enhance your experience. And you should be doing things to enhance your imagination. If you've never been to the Met in New York to see the art that is in that great museum, you should go and see what you feel when you're looking at the Impressionist's work. If you read only fiction, maybe you should read memoirs and biographies. If you only like comedy movies, maybe you should go back and look at some of the French New Wave films and some of the Italian masters. If you've only seen movies that were made in your own lifetime, well, maybe you should see On the Waterfront or Streetcar Named Desire. You know, uh, um, if you only hang out with people of your same religious background or from the same part of the country or uh, 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 people who have the same level of education, maybe you should expand your horizons and deliberately put yourself out of your comfort zone 
and feed the homeless. Or if you think sports are stupid, maybe you should go to a Dodger game. You know, if you think sports are the greatest thing in the world, maybe you should go to the opera. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love the idea that anything could be art too. To wrap us up, something I wanted to read is directly from your book that I highlighted and underlined like three times. And it was this, my bottom line advice to actors, aspiring casting directors, and everyone in between is simple. It's this, keep figuring out who you are so you can be yourself with honesty and delight, humor and absurdity. That is just beautiful. Thanks. Thanks. (laughs) Is there anything you want to add to that or to this conversation before we wrap things up? Part of my reason for joining you today, Sam, is because I'm doing a shameless pitch for my book. I want everybody to know that it's available at Barnes & Noble on their website. And also there are some autographed copies of it at the Barnes & Noble on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City. And it's available on Amazon. And there is a, a Kindle version, which is under 10 bucks, I think. And there is a soft cover, which is a middling price. And there is a hard cover. Also, to please follow me on Instagram if you feel like it, because I will be announcing another book signing event coming up. I'm not sure when or where yet. Uh, we had so much fun seeing old friends and meeting new friends and signing copies of the book at the Smokehouse last month and that we'll likely do it again. So please, while I wrote this book for my legacy, I kind of wrote it up for you. You who are listening, you who are reading it, because the first day I was working with Trudy Roth, I said, I, I'm not sure I have anything to say in 325 page list later and a real sense of accomplishment. I think the book can make a contribution to young artists and people in general. And I think the quote that you just read is at the center of the point. I I think it was lovely. And I can't thank Sarah Isaacson enough for connecting us because it's just an honor to meet you and to have read your words was lovely. And I think that no matter, you know, you call yourself a Luddite, which I think is really funny, but that at the same time, what was true then, even though we're, you know, the medium might've changed, the message is the same. And I think that you can see that through line throughout your work. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for letting me read your words. And I really appreciate your work. Thanks very much, Sam. Appreciate your having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely.